Welcome to Hot Politics. My name is David Mackay. I'm Deputy Managing Editor of Canada's National Observer, and I must admit, a bit of a political junkie. In Hot Politics, I examine who has the best ideas on important issues, especially the climate crisis. Hot Politics is made possible by listeners like you. We're asking for your support to keep the work going. Five or ten dollars as a one-time contribution or monthly gift. Every little bit helps us keep producing more episodes. Please donate at nationalobserver.com. This is episode 10, listening in on the Conservative Party of Canada. Canada's Conservatives gathered in Ottawa recently to talk policy and brainstorm about what they need to do to win power during the next federal election. There was a lot of talk about evils of the carbon tax, the suffering of ordinary Canadians, and the failures of the Trudeau government policies. Former leaders dispensed their wisdom to the gathering admirers. Former party leader and Prime Minister Stephen Harper said Canada needs, in his words, a conservative renaissance. And the present leader, Pierre Polyev, said he can make that happen. Former Reform Party leader Preston Manning said conservatives must sell the idea that they have the balanced position in dealing with the big issues like the economy, the environment. Not too hot, not too cold, just right. You've got this polarization today between environment and the economy, east versus west, uh, urban versus rural. And I think the conservative position is what, what's the balance between economy and environment? And, and the current government has got itself off on extremes. It's got itself off on uh, its climate change policy, which is an extreme position. And conservatives defining that principal position as the balanced position. Speaker after speaker spoke about supporting ordinary or working class or middle class Canadians and how they deserve to have quote unquote powerful paychecks. But they can't because they're being screwed by the high taxes imposed by the Trudeau government, in particular, that evil carbon tax. Former Prime Minister Stephen Harper called it an elite driven agenda. That record stands, I think, in stark contrast to the policy war being waged these past few years against working Canadians and their families. I could point to monetary policy, which has created out of thin air renewed inflation, eroding the budgets of all modest income households in this country. And I could point to an elite-driven climate change agenda, which is forcing the cost of energy transition entirely on ordinary middle-class consumers and taxpayers. The current leader, Pierre Polyev, said the Conservatives are the champions of the everyday common person. And we, re we reject the idea that fighting, the fighting for the environment means raising taxes on our working class. So far, Trudeau a Polyev government will fight climate change and protect the environment with technology and not taxes. We will axe the tax and put money back in the pockets of the Canadian people. Neither Harper nor Polyev mentioned those ordinary Canadians are already getting a carbon tax refund. And setting policies to fight the climate crisis is not political overreach, but necessary to avoid what a recent climate report described as consequences that will be worse than imagined if governments fail to act. 
I have three guests today. They'll talk about whether they think the Conservatives are on track to win the next federal election. First, I'm joined by my colleague, John Woodside, who was at the conference. John, can you give us a sense of what you were hearing? Because it seemed to me that this was like a pep rally and it was pretty successful. I would say it was a pep rally. I mean, this was a gathering of conservatives really to, to network. I mean, to make connections and, and celebrate where they're going and, and really hash out where they're going in a lot of ways. You'd also hear all sorts of conversations. I mean, that's a pretty diverse crowd that's trying to figure out where they're going next. And, you know, so they got a lot of star power to help build that case and help rally a lot of support. This is a big question, I guess. And but I, I just wanted to put it out there right away. Where are they going next? I mean, what sense did you get from what you were hearing? I think one of the ways that, that I would approach that question, if you go back to Wednesday night, Stephen Harper gave the keynote address and Stephen Harper, one of the things he was talking about was that uh, the modern conservative party in his view is not just a merger of two legacy parties, um, you know, the Alliance and Progressive Conservatives, but rather in his view, a synthesis of three different conservative traditions across Canada the Eastern Canada Toryism, Western Canada Populism, and uh, the autonomous tradition in uh, Quebec. Harper, when he's outlining this, what he's what he's sort of talking about here is there are different factions in this party that need to be managed, different interests that need to be managed. And what we've heard a lot in, in recent years, of course, is Western alienation. It's responding to that Western populist base of the party. And that's quite frankly what this conference, in, in my view, was more about. I heard a lot more of the populist element uh, which, you know, maybe it's not surprising given the, the shadow, I guess, that Preston Manning has over the whole uh, the whole affair. And was that populism kind of translating to young people, right? I, and I see that linking up in a, in a couple of ways. So one, there's this big question that the conservatives are going to have to address, which is how are they going to bridge this gap? Because a lot of that Western populism is just not attractive to other, quite frankly, other voters in other parts of the country. When it comes to young people, we saw a lot of enthusiasm around Pierre Polyev because he, in words of some of them, uh, you know, he makes it fun to be a conservative. You know, that, that was the feeling for a lot of these young people is that he's making it fun. And I think part of, in my read on it, part of why it's fun for them is because a lot of young people are struggling, as everyone is, with the cost of living. But young people don't have the sort of the savings to be a buffer to help kind of smooth over these economic patches. So young people are feeling the concern. Young people are looking out at a world that's getting tougher and tougher and tougher. They, they don't know if they're ever going to be able to own a home. And here's a leader who I think, you know, we would want to be pretty skeptical of what he's proposing or the solutions here. Inflation, carbon tax a little, because a lot of it was just frankly untrue. Uh, but he's at least talking about it. And, and he's talking about it with an energy that a lot of the other leaders aren't talking about it with. Pierre approaches these events in, in this messaging with a real with a real sense of the social contract's been broken. Was he also talking about climate change? No. Short answer, no. Um, climate change was not factoring in, into these conversations much. Uh, this is the party, you know, that forget exactly what the percentage was, but last year, the year before, whatever it was, you know, this is a party that basically didn't want to acknowledge that climate change was, was real. They've come around a little bit. I'll, I'll tell you what the reference to climate change was at this. During Pierre Polyev's keynote speech, he said, we're going to fight climate change with technology, not taxes. That was it. Like, but like, you know, what, what the hell is that supposed to mean? It's just a dig at the carbon tax. 
which by the way, the two buttons that uh, any speaker, when they press these buttons, it got a big reaction out of the crowd was anything hostile to the carbon tax. And it was consistently linked to inflation. That was basically it. It was anything about carbon tax, boo, boo, Justin Trudeau, <laughs> bad, you know. And, and the other one was anything anti-media. At one point, Pierre says, uh, we're going to turn CBC headquarters into affordable housing. Big cheer on that. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that that sort of, uh, that speaks to the the energy that, because it's such a crazy thing to say, but it's like, a, it, that's the energy that's really attractive to a lot of a lot of these people. Mm -hmm. So, climate change, not talked about. There were big names at the conference. Conrad Black was one of them, uh, the former media baron who would be a familiar face and voice to many in this country. Uh, you also had a chance to sit down with Preston Manning. Give us a, a sense of what he had to say to you. Preston Manning is formerly the Manning Center. So he's got a lot of influence on this. And what he wants to see the party do, he wants the Conservative Party to be the first federal party and to recognize the regional differences, the regional characteristics of this country. And, and what he means by that is Eastern Canada, Atlantic Canada rather, uh, attaches more importance to tradition. Whereas conservatives in Ontario, the business crowd, they care more about sort of traditional economics. There's the Western Canada sort of populist stuff going on in the prairies. There's the nationalist tendencies you have to deal with in Quebec. And so Preston Manning's view is we need a party that can say to each of these regions, we're prepared to recognize that you have your own particular interest, your own particular concern, and we're prepared to do something for you on that. But the price of admission for us doing something for you is you have to accept that we're going to do the same for, for everywhere else. You know, Preston Manning thinks this is a, a compelling argument because he thinks it's unifying. In his view, what makes Canada a special unique place is the big landmass that you can build uh, an economy off natural resources, whether it be fisheries, forestry, or, or energy. So this is a way to say, hey, we recognize that there are differences, but you know, then you take a step back and you go, oh, wait a minute, isn't every federal party trying to respond to every region in the country? What, what's that unique about that? What's really the story you're, you're looking to tell here? And, and I think the connective tissue is it's recognizing that Alberta and Alberta's populism is not that popular everywhere. And, and you kind of need to find a way to make that message palatable to other places and other, you know, other, other regions of the country. And the way to do that is to say, okay, we get it, Atlantic Canada, you need something too. We'll do something for you, but you got to let Alberta have its way. Like there's, there needs to be a, a real compelling message there that I'm not sure if he's found, but, uh, but I think it's an interesting peek into where this might be headed, which is to expand the scope. You know, it's not about Alberta and it's not about oil and gas. It's about how everyone needs to do something, you know? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, John, I'm going to hold you right there, and, and I'm actually going to bring you back, but I've got two guests who I think have some pretty special insights into, you know, this whole topic of regional differences and whatnot. So, John, just hang on for a second, and we'll bring you back. So, Eric Grenier covers elections at thewrit.ca, an essential resource for anyone, anyone interested in politics. He's also the former polls analyst with the CBC, where he was a valued colleague whose brain I would constantly pick. Philippe J. Fournier is creator of 338 Canada QC125. He's also a columnist at Politico and L'Actualité, and someone journalists turn to to gauge the political temperature, especially in Quebec, which will be a key province in the next federal election. Look, these are two very smart people, and I've been looking forward to this conversation ever since they agreed to be on this program. Gentlemen, 
Welcome to Hot Politics. Thanks very much, David. Good David. So you've heard my colleague John Woodside uh, give us a basic synopsis of what happened during the annual um, Canada Strong and Free Conference, which I think may have been overshadowed by the visit of the U.S. President Joe Biden. I don't know. But the Conservative Party is one that describes itself as a government in waiting. And I'm wondering, start the conversation by asking the two of you what you thought of this gathering. Eric. Yeah, uh, there, there was a couple of things that just uh, that struck me while I was listening to John. One being that conference that is uh, putting forward Preston Manning and Conrad Black as you know stars of what was at the conference is not a particularly forward-looking conference. Preston <laughs> Manning, of course, has been out of federal politics since he was ousted by Stockwell Day in the uh, the end of the uh, 1990s. And Conrad Black, he was you know, one of the people that was uh, important in founding the National Post, but still seems to be a bit of a, a relic of a, of a former time. And just hearing also what was discussed in terms of what Preston Manning was talking about, the regionalism and having to recognize each of the, you know, the regional differences in the country. This has always been the challenge for the Conservative Party, is trying to balance these things out. The Liberals have a, a an advantage in that it seems like their base is not regionally focused. It is more about their view of the country. But for conservatives, they've always had to try to balance this, these Western grievances with Quebec nationalism, with business conservatives. And whenever they can manage to get that coalition together, they get a big victory like, you know, Diefenbaker or Brian Mulroney, but then it falls apart pretty quickly and dramatically. And the kind of thing that we're hearing, at least from someone like Preston Manning, I don't think is a solution. It's a, it's a band-aid to that problem, that that coalition is not a natural coalition that elects a majority government. And it doesn't take much for the divisions between them, the contradictions, to eventually tear it apart. But if you can get a mandate or two, then you can get some things done. But it's still a huge challenge for the Conservatives that since John A. Macdonald, who was the last person who probably did it successfully, they've never really been able to pull it off. Philip? Well, of course, as you said, David, the, the, it was a bit overshadowed by the visit of the American president last week. But I still, I, I rounded the Quebec media on this uh, conference and uh, on Les Coulisses du Pouvoir on Sunday morning, who was there to speak about this conference uh, to, you know, Radio Canada? It was Eric Zwem, Eric Zwem, leader of the provincial Conservative Party, who had thirteen uh, percent of the popular vote in the last Quebec election, zero seats. And in one of the Leger polls uh, uh, of the end of the year, 2022, uh, personalities polls, they pulled 60 politicians, 60 politicians, all Quebec-born Quebec politicians. And Eric Zwem was the least liked of the bunch. And here he was talking about this conference to the French media. And so, as John alluded to, it is a, you know, a big tent, a coalition of many factions in this party. What struck me about it is if, if your uh, porte-parole in Quebec is Eric Zwem, Conservatives are not looking for gains that they would need to in Quebec to, to win a majority government. Those conferences are always interesting because you get the feel of the land in, in the, whether these people are thinking. Right now, it looks like they are more looking inward than outward. I don't see, see this conference and seeing, okay, they're going to make gains here and there in the next election. The Conservatives really need more support in the two largest provinces if they are to defeat the Liberals. And Philippe, I'm going to stay with you, Quebec, La Belle Brasse, your home turf. How are the Conservatives doing? Not very well. You look at some individual polls and you will see sometimes the odd 20-22%, whereas the cruising altitude of the Conservatives in Quebec is usually around 16 and 17. But latest, Léger poll, 16% in Quebec, back to the same old 
suburbs of Quebec City, a bit of eastern townships and Saguenay Saint Jean, which is nowhere no close to what they need to make gains. I mean, if the Conservatives want to win the next election, they need to find 40 additional seats, no, roughly. And if you make no gain in Quebec, if you just keep the 10 that you have in Quebec, that puts a lot of pressure on Atlantic Canada and, and Ontario to win. And so right now in Quebec, they have some very popular MPs, Monsieur Deltel, for instance. They, they, there's no gain right now. And, and they regularly on the, in the polls that we see in Quebec, Capoyer is very much disliked by a big chunk of the electorate. So it's very hard to go through. Unless the Bloc Québécois and the Liberals split the vote perfectly, you could have a few gains for the for the Conservatives. But as far as it goes right now, we don't see that in the numbers. What about Ontario, uh, Eric? The Conservatives seem to be doing very well in, in rural areas, not so well in the greater Toronto area, the, the, the suburban, the urban ridings, where the Liberals seem to be holding on to a lead. So what, what do they have to do in Ontario to uh, make the kinds of gains that they want, maybe to make up to the, for the fact that they may not be doing as well in Quebec as, they, as they'd like? It is a problem for them because even the best polls that we've seen for them generally only have them at 36, 37% in Ontario, a few points ahead of the Liberals. And we see just as many polls that have the Liberals tied uh, with the Conservatives across the province. And when we do see the breakdowns that go deeper into Toronto, go into the greater Toronto area, there's not a lot of that kind of polling. But when we do see it, it tends to still have a big advantage for the Liberals. So we're not seeing that the Conservatives are really making a lot of inroads in the places that they really need to to win more seats. When Stephen Harper was able to win a majority government in 2011, now the NDP was splitting the vote quite a bit, but the Conservatives were able to win seats in Toronto. Doug Ford is able to win seats in Toronto, in Etobicoke, in Scarborough, places like that. So we're not seeing that happening from the Conservatives, that all the polls that we've seen suggest that while they might be able to pick up a handful of extra seats, they're still not breaking through into places like Mississauga and Brampton that have more seats than or almost as many as, as uh, most provinces in the country. So what do, what do they have to do? I think that what we've heard from Pierre Poiliev is, is focusing on cost of living issues. This is meant to try to appeal to people who live in the suburbs uh, around Toronto. We're not sure if it's happening just yet, and if he's speaking to people who are already going to be voting for the Conservatives or not, but that seems to be the path forward for them, and maybe they're just setting the ground for that in an election campaign. If people are upset about the Liberals, then they'll be able to take advantage, but so far, they're not making the kind of breakthroughs that they need to win an election. As Philip said, they're not doing it in Quebec. I don't think there was an expectation that they could, aside from a handful of extra seats, but they're not yet doing it on Ontario either. So during the conference, the former leader and, and PM, Stephen Harper, advised his party to hold off crafting a platform until the next election is held. Good advice? <laughs> it worked for Doug Ford in 2018, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you, you know, if you have the charm, the folksy charm, and you have, you know, have some good ideas, that, some good lies that you throw at people, and a tired government also is, a, is an ingredient to this, this, this recipe. I guess you don't really need to have a solid platform, but it's always a risk because you will need this shield if you're attacked on the fact that you don't have a platform. It would be a very risky proposition if you want to convince Canadians to vote for you because the conservative base alone is not enough to win an election. You have to tell them what you're, they're voting for. This is a very risky strategy. I think it depends as well on like the kind of election it is. I think they might be looking at what happened with Aaron O'Toole, who came out with the platform really early. And I think that probably helped him in the first couple of weeks. But then once the Liberals had found a little thing about firearms, uh, that derailed the entire conservative campaign. And so the earlier you put out 
a platform, the easier it is to find something. But if it is an election that is like a change election and people just want to vote at the Liberals, then not having a platform is probably fine. People are just going to be more upset about the Liberals than they are going to be about wanting to elect the Conservatives. Not as much of a change election, and it is more about whether people trust the alternatives, then not having a, a platform until later on might become a bit of a problem. I'm wondering how the China controversy is playing in all of this. I know that, that the two of you have noted that so far, the polls aren't really showing that this is resonating to the same degree as the SSC Lavelaine, for example, resonated when we saw the popularity just drop like a stone. That doesn't seem to be happening now. But again, it's only at this point that we don't know what's happening, if, whether there'll be an inquiry or whatnot, or more bombs will be dropped. But could this affect the liberal brand? Philippe. Any brand that's in power for so long or almost a decade will feel the wear and tear at some point. Every scandal or story, damaging stories, will hurt more and more as time goes by. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'll start with this. I know it's a very general observation. As you said, David, uh, you know, this far, at least so far, the, the, the polls don't show any trouble for the liberals. The base is holding strong. And especially the conservatives have not gained much. I mean, they had 34% in the last two federal elections, 2019 and 2021. And right now, their best polls show them at 36 or 37%, and the average closer to uh, 34 So there are fewer liberal to conservative switchers than there used to be, I think, in this country. Uh, so the, 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 the conservatives have to hope for a wear and tear of the liberals. Many disaffected liberal voters could not show up to vote, and then you would have a conservative win by default. So it's a kind of a weird strategy to hope to win like this, but with everything that's happened and the ethical problems that this government has had, the two parties are still tied. This can't look good right now for the conservatives. Eric? One of the reasons why we haven't seen too much movement is that I think for the average Canadian, it is a bit of a convoluted story, right? It is about whether the Chinese were doing this or that in this riding that was benefiting, in some cases, a handful of conservatives, in other cases, liberals, not sure if they knew anything about it, not sure if the processes that the government put into place were good or not. So I think it is hard to know for a lot of voters, who is the bad guy in the story? Is it the Chinese government or is it the liberal government? And I think for a lot of people, they might be saying, well, the people who are doing the bad thing are the bad people, right? Uh, so I think that is what one of the things that is maybe explaining why the liberals haven't been hurt more than, than they have been. We don't know where this story is going to end up. And I think that's the, the big thing here. There's obviously a lot of people who are criticizing the government about their decision to appoint Johnston to more or less later on appoint a public inquiry, if that's where we end up. But what's going to come out of that? And how long is that going to take? And how will that align with the timing of the next election? So I think those are all things that we just don't know. And it's probably one of the reasons why the liberals have been so reticent to do anything about it is that it just opens up a can of worms. They don't know what's going to come out of it and how it's all going to play out when it's all over. You know, I'm, I'm kind of wondering, you know, to what degree the conservatives are just banking on the fact that the liberal brand will be so tarnished that people will just come to them. You know, you have Pierre Polyev's Canada is broken. You know, everything's broken. It's, it's, it's Justin Trudeau's fault. To what degree do you think that strategy will work? Because many people do think it, it, it could work. Yeah, I think if they're uh, planning on the liberals to defeat themselves, then that'll that'll be a bad idea. You should always try to make sure that you're pushing over someone who's tottering rather than just hope that they fall over on their own. Uh, so I think they are positioning themselves well if the next election is about, okay, it's been roughly a decade, we're finally ready to change government, then I think they might be positioning themselves well. But one of the issues that the conservatives have often had is that they assume that Canadians dislike Justin Trudeau as much as they do. Eventually, that might be true. And that'll be when Justin Trudeau is defeated. But 
I'm not sure if that assumption is is yet true. You still have to vote for an alternative. And as we saw with the Republicans in the U.S. midterms last year, if you give voters too many reasons not to make a switch, then they won't make a switch. Philip? There was a laser poll last week, I, I wrote about it in Lex Day that uh, tested uh, mental health and optimism towards the future and uh, towards your personal finances. You know, it was a breath of fresh air uh, to see those numbers. 60% of Canadians said they were optimistic about their lives. Only 14% said they were pessimistic. And when you break it down by region, you saw very little variations. You break it down by voting intentions. You saw that liberals are a little bit more optimistic about life, but the variations, again, were well within the margin of error. And same thing with the questions about mental health. And I think the, the China story, while very important, Will it resonate? As Eric said, it's very convoluted. It's very complex. There's not a clear bad guy and a clear good guy. Uh, this is not a James Bond movie. And so uh, so uh, will it resonate? Well, again, the numbers show that right now, no. Uh, but uh, if Jeff Walyev continues on this angry rant uh, that he's been going on for months, it may rile up the base. Uh, so far, it hasn't worked in growing the base. We had some liberal dynasties in this country that have lasted more than a decade. The conservatives really haven't spent a whole lot talking about climate change. And it always puzzles me just because if you take a look at the younger voter, the suburban voters that they want to attract, climate change may not be top of mind now. It might, might be crowded out by issues such as inflation and housing and whatnot, but it's still there. And I'm just wondering, you know, to, to, to only talk about climate change in terms of carbon tax and as we heard earlier from John Woodside, you know, that seemed to be, get the biggest applause at the conference, getting rid of carbon tax. Don't they have to talk a little bit more about the environment if they want to attract more votes? Eric? For the conservatives, it's more that they just need to make sure they have enough, that it won't be a reason for people not to vote for them. Because the people who care most about the environment, care most about climate change, are probably not voting conservative. But they're, they're among the people that are accessible to the conservatives, the kind of people that they need to put them over the top to win an election, environment's not huge. You still want to know that you believe in climate change, that you take it seriously. And so I think that's one of the changes we've seen from the conservatives, especially since Aaron O'Toole, and Karapoliev is, is staying a little bit in that in that way, is that still taking pains to say that, you know, they care about the environment. Now, Poliev is talking a lot about technology, for example, as was mentioned earlier on. It's a nice solution that sounds like it doesn't cost me anything and I won't have to do it, make any sacrifices, so it's great. And look, we're still going to do something. We're going to make, a, we're going to fix everything. Talking about how other countries should pick up more of the burden than us. Why should we make cuts to, you know, our emissions if China and India are going to have a huge amount? I think it is enough for that chunk of the voters that they're looking at. But in terms of trying to get, if they ever want to get to 40% or something like that, I think they would need a much more robust climate change plan. But I don't think that's what they're hoping for. I think they're hoping for to get just a few more voters out, squeeze as many as they can from the PPC, from people who voted for the Conservatives before, and hope that a lot of Liberals stay home. And that'll be enough to to get them just over what they need to form a government. Philippe, climate change is certainly a big issue in Quebec. Theoretically. <laughs> but we, I mean, that's the thing, the climate change and the environment, uh, you know, it's it's a very important issue for many voters, but I have yet to see an election where it moved a lot of votes. The CAQ won two straight convincing majorities. They don't really have a serious environmental plan. You know, it, it, it is really important, especially for young voters. I, I have not seen a lot of people saying, I will vote this way or this way because of their environmental platform. Until I see that, I will take it seriously. But so far, no. I remember the uh, during uh, the, less, the last convention of the Conservatives uh, when Errol Tool was leader. Uh, there was a vote among members. 
to recognize climate change and that, we, that it was real, that we had to do something about it, and it was turned down, it was voted down. So the, the conservative base doesn't really care about the environment. They, they won't say it publicly, but you know their, their core base are not interested in doing any sacrifices. As Eric said, they will answer, well, what about China? What about India? Whereas this is a global problem that everybody has to get together and solve. Solidarity is, is not something that is uh, very good in a political campaign. It's, it's very hard to get people together on, on, on such a cause. I'm gobsmacked by, you know, that, and, and I've heard that before, that climate change seems so important, but yet it doesn't seem to be moving the needle politically. And the conservatives, one would surmise that the conservatives have figured that out and figured that they might not need to say a whole lot about climate change in order to, to win the next election. Eric? Uh, yeah, because, you know, the Bloc Québécois, the Greens, the NDP, the Liberals, they all, while they disagree on, on you know, whether their plan goes far enough and all that kind of stuff, for the average Canadian, that just goes, I think, over their heads a little bit. But you have those four parties that are all pretty solidly on one side on the environmental file. But if you're the one party that takes the approach that this is important, but these other things are more important, and you get a minority of people to vote for that, as long as it's a big enough minority in our system, that means you can form a government. So for the conservatives, they don't need to worry that much that, you know, 60% of Canadians or, or even 65 or whatever it would be would think that this would be a, a make or break issue for their vote. As long as the other 35 or 40% are with them, then they're fine. And I think that what the lesson they took from the last election, which I'm not sure is the correct lesson to take, is that if they move too much to try to attract people who are more concerned about the environment that they risk losing more to a party like the People's Party. I think there's lots of other reasons why that kind of thing happened, but I think that is what the lesson they took from the last campaign, especially the folks that are around Polia now, who are not really the kind of people who were around O'Toole last time. If I may, uh, just a second, I'll put my scientist hat here, not my political analyst hat. Uh, the changes that we need to fix climate change and global warming is radical change. It's not incremental change. And so this is why it politically it is so difficult and you're, you're asking people to lose some of their livelihoods because to save the climate and to save the eco, entire ecosystems, incremental change will not work. And so a lot of people have started saying we, it won't work, we better adjust. Perhaps this will be the, the, the strategy of the future for, uh, for conservatives. Asking Canadians and other people to give up their stake uh, to save the environment, that's not going to win you any votes. Nope, nope. You know, you may have something there, and I was just going to add that maybe it's that people just don't feel that government is capable of doing it. Maybe the trust level is not where it should be. That could be part of it as well. What's required is so enormous that I think there might be doubts that, you know, that we actually are able to do it. John Woodside has been listening in, so I want to bring him back into this conversation at this point. So, John, just give me a sense of, you know, as we continue to cover politics in Ottawa, where you and I are based, uh, what sort of things would you be looking for? I mean, I'm really interested to see what the messaging around climate is going to be, because as, as we've been talking here, they're just not serious on climate change. You know, just last week, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the, the UN major scientific body on this, they released their synthesis report. The synthesis report is the, you know, as headlines pointed out, the final warning of the decade. These environmental assessments, they go in like kind of six-year cycles, roughly. We're not getting another one until the end of the decade. By the end of the decade, global emissions have to be cut in half. In Canada, our emissions are still rising. Like, so we're really, really in a crunch time here. The only thing that's going to get, uh, get us out of this is steep emission reductions. And, and quite frankly, there isn't a, a major Canadian federal party 
that's taking this seriously. The conservatives are refusing to even acknowledge it, but the liberals, they, uh, Trans Mountain, they, you know, they famously bought uh, to export Alberta's uh, oil sands. They approved Bay de Nord off the coast of Newfoundland last year. Recently, uh, the Cedar LNG project off the coast of uh, British Columbia was approved, which means more fracked gas being exported to Asia. I mean, we are still planning on increasing our fossil fuel production. It's easy to say, like as Pierre Polyev said, it's easy to say, you know, we'll fight climate change with technology. But, you know, the, the truth of the matter with climate change is that you can scale up renewables and new technology as fast as you like. But that doesn't do a damn thing for net zero. The task at hand is phasing out fossil fuels. And and this is a party that still doesn't want to do that. Yeah, that is not going to fly with the conservatives at all. Philip, I want you to keep your scientist hat on. What do you <laughs> what, what do you think about this? I'm trying to be not cynical about this because being cynical never solved anything. It's a dopamine release. It's It feels good to be cynical, but it doesn't work ever. We will have to pay a huge price for eventually realizing that, oh, okay, this is what it costs to not do anything. Just what happened recently with the U.S., the the Entente for, the, for migrants. Uh, migrants are going to increase dramatically in the next two decades because of climate change, because of global warming. I hate climate change. It's global warming. This is going to be a, a hot potato politically for decades to come. That means short-term uh, sacrifices that we have to make. And that I don't think most Canadians, not just conservative, not just conservative, most Canadians don't want to do. We can all have incremental changes in our lives, reducing our carbon footprint, you know, buying an electric car. This is not close to enough. Are we doomed? Well, I don't want to say that we are because there are solutions out there. There's no political will out there. And the few that do have that do show political will are shunned down in the public sphere. Eric, I'll give you the last word. The politics of global warming, um, does it does it resonate at all? I think it still does. The problem is that we've always had different things that come up that get people's concerns elsewhere. People forget that when Stephen Zion and the Liberals brought the green shift uh, ahead of the 2008 election, the environment was by far the top issue, by far, in all the polls that were done at the time. And it seemed like Zion had a great plan at a time that people really wanted something like that. Oh, wait, financial crisis 2008. We got other issues to deal with. And this is the kind of thing that happens again. And again, it happened before the pandemic. The environment had gotten itself back up into the top issue in polls. And then the pandemic came around. Well, we got other things to worry about. The problem is, as Philip just said, and John just said, eventually we run out of time. It is still an issue, and it's particularly for younger people. But once younger people become older people and make up, you know, the bulk of the electorate, it again might be too late. So I, I <laughs> Philip is trying not to be cynical. Cynical. I don't think we have the political will uh, and political maturity in our in our democracy for these kinds of conversations. And it's not just our politicians. It's the Canadians too. As Philip said, you know, sacrifice is hard to make. There's been polling research done that if you have two products that are the same price, people will be happily buying the one that's more environmentally friendly and ethical and all that kind of thing. But if you change the price, uh, people would like to save some money. That is still a big problem in our political culture, and it's not just in Canada. I think it's a global issue as well. Well, lack of political will notwithstanding, we certainly will continue talking about this because it's important, and I thank you all for a, a fascinating discussion. Eric, Philippe, and John, thank you very much, and we hope to uh, we hope to talk to you again. Merci, Dave. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. À la prochaine. That's it for today. 
Thanks for listening. And please rate us a five on Apple and tell your friends. We want everyone to find us. Hot Politics is produced by Canada's National Observer. Our managing producer for podcasts is Sandra Bartlett. Associate producer, Zara Kozema. The editor-in-chief of Canada's National Observer is Karen Pugliese. Our publisher is Linda Solomon-Wood. I'm David Mackay. Next Tuesday, it's Maxed Out with Max Fawcett. See you in two weeks.